Good morning, everybody. Today's reading is from Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. That's Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. <clears throat> I'm grateful to uh, to be able to dive into our new lesson series for this year with you this morning. Uh, Jay started us off last week, if you'll remember, with an introduction to our, our focus for this year. Uh, Jay shared with us a great lesson about um, this this idea of building our lives on the rock who is Jesus Christ. And that sort of is a, a really good way to summarize what our series will be this year in case you missed it. Uh, we're going to be focusing on 2023. We're going to be focusing on what we believe. That's our theme for this year. We want to lay a sound, uh, a sound foundation or solid foundation for spiritual growth. And so we want to look at what the Bible has to, de- uh, has to say about some very foundational topics and concepts that inform everything that we do as followers of Jesus. And so to start this out, in, in the month of January, we're going to be focusing on what we believe about the Bible. About the Bible. The Bible is the starting point in many ways because what we believe about God, what we believe about people, about the gospel, about salvation, etc., it's all going to depend on what we believe about the Bible. So it's a good place to start. Uh, the title for our lesson today is called The Bible is True. You know, maybe not the most exciting title, uh, but yet it's quite a claim to make, right? When we say the Bible is true, it's going to lead to some questions. <clears throat> Somebody might say, you know, isn't the Bible like a super ancient document? What do you mean the Bible is true? Or someone else might ask you, or maybe you might even be wondering this yourself, you know, why do you believe that the Bible is true? I mean, what is truth anyways? And how can you be so confident that the Bible is true? Those are reasonable questions. And it's important to address them, and so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. I want to break our lesson down into two parts based on these two questions. The first is... Um, we want to talk about what it means to say the Bible is true. What does that mean? And second, we can talk about how we can support that claim. So let's just jump right in to the first question here. Uh, But before we get into addressing what it means for the Bible to be true, we need to maybe address something else because uh, we can't really take for granted that all of us are working from the same definition of what truth means. You know, what is truth? (laughs) that's probably the place to start. And you might be thinking, you know, the question, what is truth, is sort of a new age kind of question. But really it isn't. Uh, 
if we if we look at this uh, next scripture, we'll see a conversation between Jesus and a, a Roman governor named Pilate. Uh, just hours before Jesus was crucified, this is what it says in John 18, starting in verse 37. Then Pilate, the governor, said to him, Jesus, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone is who everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Interesting question. It seems that Pilate was either unsure about what truth was, or maybe he thought it was foolish that Jesus would even claim to know the truth. You know, like there could even be such a thing. His response, it reminds me a bit of our world today. The Western world that we live in has partly adopted what's called a postmodern worldview. You may have ter- uh, heard of this term postmodern, before, postmodernism before. Uh, this is a bit of an over, oversimplification on my part, but the postmodern way of looking at the world in part denies that universal or absolute truth uh, exists. And even if it did exist, no one could really know it. You know, what, whatever someone considers to be truth is only really true for that person. And what a person believes to be true is something that they've just sort of defined for themselves based on their beliefs, their biases, uh, their upbringing, their language, their history, race, you know, et cetera, et cetera. According to some recent statistics, this uh, postmodernism worldview has become quite common in some places. Uh, back in 2016, Barna, the Barna Group, did a study and they published it, uh, and it has some interesting statistics related to this idea. Now, I normally try to find Canadian stats for these kinds of things, but in this case, we're looking at the American population. But I think there's still going to be some value in looking at these numbers for us. In the study, they asked this question. They asked whether or not people agreed with this statement. Here it is. Whatever is right for your life or whatever works best for you is the only truth you can know. That was the statement. They asked, you know, do you agree with that or not? According to the study, 57% of Americans agreed with that statement. Over half of Americans agreed that the only real truth that we can know is a sort of um, relative truth, you could say. The truth that works best for you is real truth for you. And the truth that is right for my life is real truth for me, and therefore my truth and your truth may not be the same. We've probably heard this before. And it's what you would expect in a culture that has at least in part adopted a postmodern worldview. But what I found really concerning about the Barna study is how Christians responded to the statement. Uh, Barna defined practicing Christians as people who identified as Christian. They went to a worship service at least once a month, and they said that their faith was very important to them. So according to the study, when they asked practicing Christians if they agreed with the same statement, 41% said that they agreed. So it's less, you know, than the rest of the culture, but still 41% of people who claim to follow Jesus believe that truth is just, you know, whatever is best for you. I don't know, I find that concerning. 
It seems that many Christians today are struggling with the same question as Pilate. What is truth? It seems like we might be living in a time when many people who claim to know God have lost sight of what God says about truth. And if so, it wouldn't be the first time. Isaiah offers a window into how God's people thought about truth in his time, and it's recorded in Isaiah 59. Here was the commentary on the culture at that time. He says, Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. It's pretty heavy stuff. (laughs) In many ways, judging by the stats we looked at, this could have been written yesterday. You know, today things are pretty much the same, very much in some ways. Truth is understood to be more of a personal preference than an absolute standard. Maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about this because many people, especially in younger generations, and I can vouch for this, you know, we've grown up in a world where this kind of thinking is normal. It's even celebrated. Because, And, and so this morning I want to look at a few passages of Scripture Uh, to see what the Bible has to say about truth. Because I think we're going to see that it's a bit different than what we've been talking about so far. So let's start out with this scripture here from Psalm 119, 160. The psalmist says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This verse paints a, a very different picture of what truth is. You know, the entirety of God's word, it's saying, is truth. And it's not just true for a certain period of time. No, it's true forever. I want to point out something else, too. This verse doesn't say that God's word is like a type of truth, one of many. You know, rather, it's saying that God's word is the standard for truth. And everything else should be judged based upon that standard to determine whether or not it is true. His word is not a type of truth. His word is the truth. That's a, that's a big difference. That's a big deal, and that's a big claim to make. It's completely different than saying, you know, whatever is right for your life is truth for you. Let's look at another scripture here. Going back to um, John 18, uh, from the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, we see that Jesus refers to a singular, the truth. He didn't come to testify to a version of the truth. It was the universal truth that he brought. In Jesus' mind, there's no such thing as different versions of the truth. It's not something that I get to make up, and it doesn't really have anything to do with how I think or how I feel about it. You know, not, and I'm not saying that our thoughts and our feelings don't matter. I'm just saying that they don't really have any bearing on whether or not something's true. If something is true and I don't agree or I don't like it, that doesn't change the fact that it is true. Jesus came to tell us what the truth is so we can know it. And it's important that we know it because of what Jesus also says about the truth in John chapter 8. Starting in verse 31, he, he was talking to his disciples, uh, sorry, to the Jews who had believed in him. He said, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So again, here Jesus makes reference to the truth. 
a singular truth, not your truth, not my truth, but the truth. Contrary to the, uh, the results of the Barna study, according to Jesus, truth is not defined by what works for, uh, for me or what is right for you. You know, it's, it's based on the word or the teachings of a holy God, which is ultimately what we have written down for us in the Bible. The Bible is truth. That may not be a popular thing to say today, but it is what the Bible claims about itself. And it's important that we understand that claim. So the Bible claims that its teachings are true, but in some ways, you know, that's kind of circular reasoning, right? For many of us, maybe the statement, the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, would be good enough. Because we've walked long enough with God that the claim that his word is true becomes self-evident to us. But can we support this claim that the Bible is true in any other way? I want to consider a couple of theories from the world of philosophy, the study of philosophy, uh, to try and deal with the question of how we can know whether or not something is true. Now, neither of the theories that I'm about to share are perfect or without criticism, but yet there are, these are two of the most well-known and well-understood theories that people who are a whole lot smarter than me have come up with uh, to try and understand the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? The first one, first theory is called the correspondence theory of truth. It essentially uh, says, this theory says something like, uh, something is true if it corresponds to or if it accurately describes the way the world is. In other words, something is true if it matches reality. For example, if I said the lights are on in this room, you can know that that's a true statement because you can look up and see that the lights are in fact on. The correspondence theory of truth. Can we prove with certainty that any document as complex as the Bible is, is true solely based on this theory? I mean, probably not. But with that said, so much of the Bible corresponds with reality uh, that its truthfulness at least deserves to be seriously considered according to this theory. For instance, the places in the Bible correspond to real places in the world. The dates in the Bible, they correspond uh, to the reality of real dates that we know about in history. The events described in the Bible, they correspond to the reality of historical events that we have written down and recorded. But more than this, and more impactful for me at least, the teachings of the Bible, uh, they correspond to reality as well. Here's just, uh, well, if you just look at the book of Proverbs, you'll see that it's just full of hundreds of examples of teachings that correspond to reality. I just wanted to share a couple with us this morning from Proverbs 13:20. It says, "Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm." It's self-evident that it corresponds to reality that when we spend time with people who are wise, we learn from them and become wiser, and the opposite is also true. It corresponds with reality. Here's another one from Proverbs 16:24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. It also corresponds with reality to say that when people speak gracious words to us, it's beneficial and even healing, like emotionally healing when we've been hurt. 
We could look at literally hundreds or, or more examples from Scripture of things that correspond to reality. People, places, events, teachings. There are so many. Now again, it's widely recognized that the correspondence theory of truth, like all theories of truth, is not perfect. And maybe we can't definitively prove that the Bible is true just based on that one theory alone. But if nothing else, the evidence should at least cause someone with an open mind to consider that maybe if so much of what the Bible talks about corresponds with reality, it's reasonable to consider that the whole, the whole Bible is, is true. One more theory I want to share. The second theory that's widely discussed today is called the pragmatic theory of truth. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, this theory essentially says that if something works, it is true. It's a little confusing. Uh, it's, it's to say that if what you're relying on as true consistently works and it doesn't let you down, then the thing that you're relying on can be considered to be true. Take math, for instance. You know, when, when people at NASA want to send a ship to the moon, for instance, there's a lot of math involved with that. The pragmatic theory of truth would, would say that the rules of math that are being used to calculate that mission to the moon are true based on the evidence that the missions themselves are working. They're successful. This theory can be applied to a lot of areas. And it can even be applied to the Bible for looking for truth within the Bible. Personally, my faith in the Bible does not depend or it's not based on the pragmatic theory of truth. However, some parts of the logic behind this theory, the logic of looking for evidence to prove truth, is a big part of why I believe the Bible is true. I've tested God's word in my own life. And it's proved time and time again to be reliable. And to me, this is good evidence that it is true. I have walked with Jesus and followed him, not perfectly, but I've done it enough to conclude that what his, what his words are saying, they are trustworthy, they are true. Maybe you've concluded that as well. And that brings us uh, to our reading from this morning. I love how these verses are structured. I've kind of laid it out a little differently here, but you can see this, this interesting structure in the psalm. It starts out with a claim. There's a claim about the truth of God's word, and then it's followed by evidence to support the validity of that claim. It's like God is inviting people to put his word to the test and see whether or not it's true. For instance, in verse 7, it says that the law of the Lord is perfect. That's quite a claim to make. But then there's an evidence for that. The evidence is that we can look for uh, is that it refreshes our soul. So put it to the test and see for yourself. In the original language, the word for refresh is based on the act of turning something around or bringing something back. In other words, the Bible has a way of turning your life around. Or you could say that it has the ability to get your life on track or back on track. I know that I can speak for a lot of people here when I say that this has been a reality for me. It's true. The next claim that it makes here in verse 7 is that the word of God is trustworthy. And the evidence is that it makes people wise. If you've been following God's word, think about your life. 
Think about how you've grown over the years. Has there been a time when you've made a change because of something that was clearly taught in the Word of God? Maybe something like what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, this teaching may not always be simple to put into practice, but who could deny its wisdom? How many of us uh, would grow in wisdom if we considered the difference between the things that we have control over and the things that we don't, and then focused our efforts on what actually matters today? Maybe to focus on finally repairing that broken relationship or or to get at that list of things that we've been putting off or to address that nagging sin in our life. Putting a teaching like this into practice will make us wise and it offers proof that God's word is true. But there's a catch to that, right? Because the proof will only reveal itself when we put it into practice in our own lives. Going back to Psalm 19 again, verse 8 says that God's words are right. And when we follow them, they bring joy to our heart. Again, there's so many ways that following God's word can bring joy to our our lives. And one of those is confessing and renouncing sins. I'm going to read what King David had to say about a time when he did this, this confession thing. And see if you can relate to what he says. Maybe this has been something that you've experienced too. In Psalm 32, I'm going to read verses 3, 5, and 11 just to save a bit of time. It says, for when I kept silent, David is saying this, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And then verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. David knew that God wanted him to confess his sins, but at the start he wasn't doing it. The result? Verse 3 says that it felt like his bones were wasting away. But when he followed the truth of God's word, he reports a totally different outcome. In verse 11, it describes him as rejoicing and encouraging everyone else to shout for joy with him. All because he followed the truth of God's word. I know I'm not the only one who's experienced something like this firsthand. It's difficult to confess and turn away from sin. But in my experience, and I'm guessing in yours too, when we do it, we experience the joy of truth. And it proves and it gives us more evidence that the Bible is true. When we live it out, we know. Going back to Psalm 19 again. The second half of verse 8 says that God's word is radiant like a light and it helps us to see the right path. It reminds me of what another psalm says, uh, 119 verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How has God's word been like a lamp to your path? Has it proved to be trustworthy at lighting the way for you? When you reflect on your life and the times that you've been able to follow God's word, has it proven to be a trustworthy guide for your life, for your your family and your home, for your work, for your personal decision making? Again, I know that I'm not the only one who can vouch for the fact that the Bible has been an incredibly reliable guide to live by. 
It's true. We could keep on going through the rest of the claims in Psalm 19, but I think by now we've seen a trend. The Bible invites us to look for evidence that that its claims are true. But in order to see that evidence, we actually have to put the word of God into practice in our lives. And maybe that's why we've become so disconnected from this idea of God's word being true. Maybe there's been too many times when we've reached that difficult decision point in our lives and we've decided to compromise and substitute our own version of truth for the real truth of God's word. I love how G.K. Chesterton put this idea. He said in his book, What's Wrong with the World? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I'll say that again. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. According to Chesterton, it's not that you and I have put God's word to the test and found out, yeah, it's just not that reliable. On the contrary, the problem is that we often examine the word and we think, man, that is going to be hard to live out. And so we just don't do it. And therefore, we don't experience the beauty of the truth. Psalm 19, which we read this morning, God makes a lot of claims about following his word. But one thing he never claims is that living it out is going to be easy. (laughs) We know it's difficult, right? It's difficult. But in verse 11, we are encouraged to keep trying because there is great reward for those who live in truth. Going back to John 8 again, we can see that Jesus said something very similar. He said that there's a reward. And the reward for truth is that it will set us free from many things. Things like the trap of materialism. Wasting our time and energy on things that have no eternal value. It will set us free from addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, people pleasing, work, and the list could go on and on. The truth will set us free from mass confusion and distraction about our true identity, about our true purpose in life, which is an eternal, life-giving relationship with the God who created us. In our culture, you know, it might seem harsh maybe to say that the Bible is true and we need to live by the truth. But I hope that what we've talked about today will help us to see that it is a reasonable claim to make. It's a critical claim to make. With that said, I want to offer a couple of balancing points to our lesson as well. The first is that even though the Bible is true, we don't have permission to ram the idea down everyone's throats. The Bible says that we need to be gentle, that we need to be respectful, uh, that we need to be loving. Ephesians 4 says that we need to speak the truth, but do it in love, right? We need to remember that. The second balancing point I want to offer is that we need to avoid the extreme of teaching that one truth means that every Christian must be the exact same or, and no variation will be tolerated. You know, globally speaking, I think the church has made the mistake of doing this in the past, and maybe that's part of the reason why the pendulum has now swung so far the other way in our postmodern society. People are unique. Christians are unique. We're not made from a cookie cutter. 
And our lives are not all going to look exactly the same in every way. And that's okay. That's good. We have different personalities and opinions. And on certain matters, that's okay. There will be certain activities that some people should not participate in that are okay for others and vice versa. We should be able to discuss and even disagree on certain debatable matters in Scripture. There is room for diversity and even disagreement. This type of healthy diversity is one thing, but claiming that each Christian is the author of their own truth is a different thing entirely. God's word is our only source of truth, and our lives need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. You know, deep down, I think that we as humans have a desire for something lasting and unchanging in our lives. We want to know that even if our emotions change, even if our opinions changes, even if our culture changes, there is a foundation that just does not move. There is a truth, the truth, that never changes. There is something firm and immovable in the Word of God that we can build our lives on with confidence and certainty because God's Word, the Bible, is true. Not someone's version of truth, not someone's opinion about truth, but truth itself. We believe that the Bible is true. And we believe that we can know the truth and build our lives on the truth. And on that note, I want to end off with one final scripture here from Ephesians 1. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says here that when we hear the word of truth and believe in it, that God rewards us with one of the most amazing blessings, eternal life, eternal salvation. It says that God comes to live within us through his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what is to come. We can be confident in that promise because it is true. When we look at the New Testament and uh, examples in the early church, we see that baptism was the way that someone expressed their belief in and their decision to follow Jesus. When we decide to follow him, God will save us. And if you're ready to make that decision, if you're ready to start building your life on the truth of God's word, please uh, come and talk to me today, and we'd be happy to help you take that step. Thank you for your time.